been in law enforcement now for almost 37 years. It was a calling. It was something that I, I truly wanted to do with my life. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to get on the city police department here in Louisville in 1980. I've been the chief now for, for almost four and a half years, and, and it has been, without a doubt, the most rewarding thing that I could have done with my life. As, as a police officer, you contact thousands of people over the course of your career, but with every call, it's an opportunity to make a difference. With our decisions, with our words, with our actions, we can literally change the course of a person's life. The three things that I pray for every single day is first, the wisdom I need to know the right thing to do. Second, is the courage to do it, even if it might be hard. And finally, it's just that work ethic and that follow through that you need to fully and completely implement whatever those decisions are. You know, there isn't a single meeting that I go into that I'm not asking God for guidance. It is hard and, and, and in some places prohibited to, to really loudly profess your faith. But you can do it with each and every action. Already this year, our officers have, have saved over 320 people who have overdosed on heroin. You know, we have officers who typically would be arresting people for possessing drugs, and here we're, we're saving their lives, and we're hoping that they're using that as an opportunity to maybe change their lives. We have started, uh, over the last six weeks, doing peace walks in neighborhoods. Uh, we're trying to get our officers to slow down and take more time with our citizens. It is us trying to send a message to people in this community that we care and that we're willing to get out and learn who they are and hear their problems firsthand and to work with them to try to do what we can to make their neighborhood better. They deserve it. There are so many opportunities that we see each and every day to help another person. The neighbors that need your help don't necessarily live next door. Being able to do that in front of your kids is passing it on. Being able to do that in front of your neighbors and your friends is showing others what you believe and what's important to you. Does that inspire you? Does that, does that inspire you? I'm, I'm so inspired by Police Chief Conrad and his story. So thankful to Chief Conrad and his wife Joan who attend here each week at this service. The Chief Conrad was willing to allow me to come and spend some time with him and to learn more about his faith and his willingness to share the story, his story. And, and right now as we begin this message, I would ask that you would pray for him, for the work that he does. Uh, his very difficult and demanding job, a very thankless job. What I really, really appreciate about his story is the way that his story inspires me to live my faith every day. The reason I wanted to share his story with you today is if you were listening closely, is that Chief Conrad understands his work to be a calling. He is called into law enforcement to make a difference in the lives of people around him and in our community. He said his words... He believes that his words and his actions and the decisions he makes every day where he lives and works and does his life has the power and the potential to change people's lives. Do you want to know how our church can have an impact on our city? What we need are more people who are ministers where they work and in their business. 
We need more school teachers who are ministers, more lawyers who are ministers, more custodians who are ministers, more coffee makers who are ministers. We need people who will be priests in their neighborhood, more people who will be pastors in their family. We need more people who understand themselves to be missionaries, who walk across the street into neighborhoods that are dark and lonely and bring light and bring hope. That's what it means to to share our faith, to live our faith every day where we live in the world. The reason we do this, it's, it's, it's girded and and strengthened by what Paul says in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul gives us the essence of the gospel. He says that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What that means is that through the very life and heart of God and the person of Jesus who sacrificed himself, we have forgiveness. That means that there is nothing in our life that can keep us from being the man or the woman that God has created us to be, that every person is valuable and worthy and redeemable. And for this reason, because it's all because of the riches, the abundance of a God who is a God of grace, who has lavished it on us and poured it on us and given it to us with all his wisdom and all his understanding. What that means is that last part, wisdom and understanding, is that God looks at you and can see who you can be and understands where you have been. And instead of judging you and condemning you, gives you new life and new opportunities. And then Paul just goes on a roll and strengthens what he says in chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, because you were dead in your transgressions, in your sins. And you used to live an old life. You used to follow the ways of the world. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive. He has taken our dead, wounded lives and given us life, animated us. Even we were dead in our transgressions because we have been saved by his grace in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness to us in Jesus. You know what he means when he says that? What he's saying here is that when people look at you and when they see where you've been and they see where you're going and they see how your life has been changed by him in your life, they'll know that God is good. That your life is the evidence of the goodness of God because he has made you who are dead alive. And it is by grace, he says, this has happened, not because you've done it, not because you've earned it. It is a gift, a gift that has come by God, not by works so that no one could boast. And this is is why. This is the part that makes me want to jump up and down, do a backflip and turn around three times and shout because there's a reason. He says, we are God's handiwork. Another translation says, we are his masterpiece. You know what that means? What it means is that he took you, all the broken pieces of your life, all the different pieces of your life, the good things, the sad things, the hard things, the bad things, everything about your life, your story, 
your life. And what he has done is he has taken those pieces and created a beautiful mosaic of who you are. So when the world looks at you, they see the uniqueness and beauty of what God has done in your life. They look at you and see, there's a masterpiece. There's a masterpiece. Every masterpiece is unique. No one is a copy of another person. And why? The reason he has poured himself into you and created you and renewed you and strengthened you is because he has a purpose for you to play in the redemption of the world. That God has invited you on this grand adventure of bringing new life and hope to the world to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to be a priest, to share your faith where you are. And he's already prepared this for you to do in advance. First thing I want to make, point I want to make this morning is this. That God has made you, God has made you who you are to share your faith where you are. Now sometimes we, we mistake things. We think that Christianity looks like this. We, it looks like a bunch of people all dress the same, who all believe the same, who all vote the same, who all walk the same, who all talk the same, who all listen to the same music. And so we think that we become Christians and we have to get pushed like a round peg into a square hole and march out of the world and say all the right things and do all the right things that we're all created to be clones. But that's not God's plan. Because when God enters your life and recreates you, he makes you unique and special as you are, a masterpiece. You are not a copy of anyone else. And the way that you're going to infect the world with his goodness is to keep it weird. To keep your faith weird. To keep your life weird. Just like the story of our chief. Who when he was a little boy, told his mother that he wanted to be a police officer. Chief Conrad could do anything with his life. He could be a pastor. He could preach and lead the church. But God made him uniquely to serve in this way in his role in the world as a chief of police, a pastor in law enforcement. You know, you know what I love about the story, what, what makes Police Chief Conrad so incredibly weird? Excuse me, Chief. But what makes him so incredibly weird is that oftentimes when you meet people who are in law enforcement, over a 37-year career, they become hard-hearted and cynical and bitter from all the wars of all the conflict from within their department and also outside in the world, and they become cynical about the ability of people to change. But because Chief Conrad, he says he wakes up every day and he does three things. He prays for wisdom. He prays for courage to follow through on what it is that God is calling him to do. And then he prays for the strength to follow through. And it is that prayer life, that rich prayer life, that Jesus at the heart of his life that keeps him fresh and tender-hearted. Now believe me, he is tough. But tender-hearted to be able to look at a heroin addict in our city and see the masterpiece that they can become. To be able to look at a person and not to see their crime. 
but to see the possibility for a new creation. And to see the ability to bring new life through his, through his work. A few years ago, I had the wonderful opportunity to go to one of the most beautiful places on the earth. I, I wish we could all go there. It's called Iona, and this beautiful abbey is built there. That cross sitting on the island of Iona, it's been sitting there for thousands of years. Iona is off the western coast of, of Scotland. And it's a very austere place. There's not a lot of plant life or trees on the island. Uh, in the wintertime, it's a very bitter and very cold place. In order to get to Iona, you have to travel by boat to the island of Mull. You have to ride a bus across the island of Mull for, for more than an hour. Then you get on another boat and you get to the island of Iona. And you would think, uh, who could ever live here? Well, in 563 A.D., a man by the name of Columba, who grew up as a, uh, a descendant of St. Patrick, he grew up in a royal family, chose the priesthood. He then left Ireland and went to this little island and established an abbey and a colony of monks for the intent purpose of taking Christianity to Scotland to a pagan part of the world. This island became the launching point for him to entering the world. And what would happen is he would came here and then he would send out monks and people they had trained, much like we do here. This is our Iona. And then these priests, the way they would work is they would move into various parts of Scotland and they would build little huts where they would live among the people. How did they live among the people? They lived among the people by tending to the sick, caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, living the way of Jesus, and loving on people. So that by the time that they ever opened up their mouth to preach a message or to teach a sermon, the people had seen the sermon, lived in their everyday life as they lived among the people. And they made Christianity so attractive to the pagan culture that the pagan culture became Christian. That's how they were able to convert Scotland to Christianity. The point I would make is this, this very important point is that it is not our beliefs that matter, but it is our way of living that matters. You see, what you believe, this is my second point, what you believe is important. It's just not persuasive. Think about it. We live in a world of competing ideologies and often polarizing ideologies. Everybody has a belief about something. We live in a world of multiple religions, multiple point of views. And if you want to sit in the marketplace and talk about your ideas and what you believe, that is fine. But none of that is persuasive because the church and Christianity is no longer holds its sway over culture that it once did. Instead, it is your deeds, not your creeds, that matter. It's how you choose to live and how you choose to model the way of Jesus that matters because it is our love and our mercy that makes Jesus attractive. 
It is our way of being, not our way of believing. Interesting. Scriptural foundation for this. Jesus is about to leave the earth. He spends his last night with his disciples and he gives them his final instructions. Imagine if you knew it was your last night on earth and you were leaving the earth and your family was surrounding you, what would you tell them and what would you want them to know before you left if you had one last night with them? What's interesting is what does Jesus do? Jesus takes a towel from around his waist, a garment, his outer garment. He gets a bowl of water. He sits down at the feet of his disciples. The Son of God stands below them, beneath them, takes their sand-caked feet, puts them in a water basin, cleans off their dirty feet, the act of a servant and a slave, and then dries off their dirty feet and cleans their feet. And then he looks at them and says, do this for one another. No one is greater than when they are a servant to one another. His final lesson is an act of servanthood. You would think he would say, okay, here are the ten things that you need to believe about me. Here is the, the ten points of doctrine that you need to share with the world so that people have right belief. No, what does he say? He looks at them after he does this and he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the greatest of all commandments. You want to follow me, you will love, 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 love. And the world will know that you follow me because of your love for one another. Isn't it interesting that we often think that the way that we demonstrate our faith and the way we bring others to faith is by talking about what we believe when Jesus' primary mode of making himself attractive was through mercy, goodness, kindness, and love. It's really, really interesting. If you were to go and read uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, he has this powerful section where he looks at these religious leaders and goes, woe unto you. If Jesus ever says, woe, look out because you're about to get smacked. So, so Jesus is talking to them because they're all bent out of shape. Why don't you wash your hands before you eat your meals? Why do you heal on the Sabbath? The law teaches this. We believe this. You drink out of a cup and you don't even wash the outside of the cup. You just take it up and drink out of it. You hang out with the wrong kinds of people. Yada, yada, yada. All these things. And Jesus looks at them and says, you believe a lot of things. But woe unto you. You're concerned about all these laws and all these rules. And you've neglected the most important thing, he says. Justice, mercy, and love. You want to do right by me, he says, feed the hungry. Really interesting. John the Baptist, over in uh, Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist has been taken into prison. And because of who he is, he is about to lose his life, about to lose his head. And he sends some messengers to Jesus and he says, Jesus, are you who you say you are? How do I know that you're really the Messiah? And what is it? Jesus doesn't go, well, I'm the Messiah because I'm going to quote to you Leviticus 3.16. Joshua 36.5. Psalm 16.2. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't give him 
This is how you know I'm the Savior of the world because this belief, this belief, this belief, this doctrine, this doctrine, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all these things I line up here. No, he looks and says, I am the real deal because the lame walk, the blind see, and good news has been preached to the poor. He does not answer the question with a theological response, but with an ethical, an ethical imperative. What you believe is important. The only problem is it's just not persuasive. We make Jesus attractive by the way that we live. Look at this cross. This is the cross of Jesus. Paint, uh, carved by Michelangelo when he's about 18 or 19. If you go to Florence, Italy, you'll see this in a very nondescript building in a neighborhood. Most people never go to see it because it's not one of the more well-known pieces. But when I saw this cross, I was floored by its beauty and simplicity because it shows Jesus naked and vulnerable and open and giving his life for people. But when you walk across the city of Florence, you walk into a beautiful ornate building, a church building called the Baptistry, and you see another image of Jesus on the ceiling. In this image, he's not... He is dressed. He's not among the people. He's above the people. This is loaded with all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of theologies meant to reinforce a certain doctrine and a belief system. It was meant to keep people in their place. It's beautiful. But what happened is the reason the church lost its way over and lost its soul between the first century and the fifth century is the church went from being a people of deeds to being a people of creeds. And instead of fighting over how we were going to take care of the poor and the hungry and the suffering, the church began to fight over who is the father in relationship to the son, who is the son in relationship to the father. The church began to argue over the Trinity and went from being a Jesus among the people to a Jesus above the people. Do you want to know how the Roman Empire was able to eventually successfully kill Christianity. First of all, it tried to kill disciples by murdering them and throwing them to the lions, but they realized that that would not work. So the best way to kill Christianity was to make it a part of the empire and to make it the official religion of the empire and to get the focus of Christianity off of deeds and upon creeds. When Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire, they began to divide the church. They began to say, this is what it means to be an official Christian. But that was not first century Christianity. First century Christianity attracted people to the faith, not because of what they believed, but because of how they lived. They lived among the poor. They welcomed rich and poor into the church. They fed the hungry and they took care of the sick. And during the time of plagues, when people were dying from sickness and disease, the pagan priests would leave town, but the Christians stayed behind and cared for the sick and dying. And they too lost their life because of their commitment to care for people. And it was so attractive that people became followers of Jesus. The Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate, said this derisively about the early church and said, these impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but also ours. Whilst the pagans' priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. One of our core values as a congregation is freedom of belief. 
And this is what I hear all the time, and I just want to drive a stake in the ground. I want this to be a part of our heritage and our culture from this day forward, that we understand that freedom of belief, which we celebrate as a church, meaning that we don't expect everybody to believe the same thing. We allow for freedom and interpretation of Scripture. But what I hear so often around here, and I want to drive a stake in the ground, and I want to refute this completely with my words, that we sometimes say that freedom of belief is a new thing, that freedom of belief is caving in to our culture. This is my point. Freedom of belief is not caving into our culture. Freedom of belief is not something new. Freedom of belief is very first century Christianity. In the first century, Christians were not lined up by what they believed. They did not have theological uniformity. They had theology of practice. They followed the ethics of Jesus. It was not theology. And so when you went across the Roman Empire and looked at how Christians believed and acted, they all had different ideas about who Jesus was and what it meant to be saved. It was only after Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire that Christians began to unite under belief and then began to kill those who did not fit in with the beliefs and squashed this out of the church. In the first century church, women were considered leaders and were able to serve as leadership. But once the church became a part of the Roman Empire, then women were crushed because it reflects more the empire than it did the early first century teaching of the church where there was a diversity of viewpoints. Freedom of belief is not new, it's first century. And why? Because beliefs are cheap and they are easy. We can sit in a Bible study all day long and we can talk about what do you believe, what do I believe, what do I believe, what do you believe. It doesn't matter. I mean, beliefs are important. Who we think of Jesus, that he is the Savior of the world, yes. But beliefs require us to change nothing. And so in our church, I would say that freedom of belief is muscular. It is not weak. It is strong because what we are choosing to do is focus in on the hard thing, which is the ethics of Jesus. Because it's one thing for us to sit in a room and talk about who's going to be saved and who's saved, who's not saved. This issue, that issue. When Jesus looks us in the face and says, what are you going to do with your stuff? What are you going to do with your possessions? You live on the top of the planet and you consume more than other people and there are people around you who are starving and you think that you've earned it and God's blessed you. No, you just were born privileged and other people were not. When are you going to get down and do your stuff? That's why we're not having any more Bible studies at Middletown Christian Church because Bible studies are a waste of time. It's about gathering more information. We don't need to gather more information. We need to stop being informed and start performing. We need to start having Bible doings and sitting down and talking instead about how the Bible applies to other people. Instead saying, what does the Bible say to me? What is God saying to me? And what does it mean to live the ethics of Jesus? Let me tell you, freedom of belief is a lot harder than we think because because when you start focusing on beliefs and theology and doctrine, it's an escape from the harder reality of the ethics of Jesus. Because the best way to worship God is to follow Jesus. It's a way of living. 
not a way of believing. And the best way to follow Jesus is to love your neighbor. That's what it means. That's what it means that God has put us together. He has saved us by his grace. He's turned us into a masterpiece to be who we are, where we are, to live our faith every day. And this is how we do it. Like Chief Conrad, we ask for wisdom. We ask for courage. We follow through. And then my piece of advice, walk slowly in your neighborhood. Because the speed of love is a lot slower than the speed of life. And so we pay attention. We listen deeply. We display empathy. And then we love courageously. Amen.